Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? What if I fail? What if you succeed? What if it hurts? What if you break through that barrier? What if I can't do it? What if you can do it? As we ride the roller coaster of life, we realize that not every day will go to plan and our positive state may change to a negative one and vice versa. One minute, we may be feeling happy, content, calm, energetic or excited, and then something happens to change our state. We end up feeling stressed, frustrated, angry, sad, or any one of a hundred other states. Now, this is pretty normal, but imagine if more people knew how to help someone change their state. This is the area of expertise of my guest today, author, meditation and hypnosis expert, Mark Stevens. Mark has transformed many lives, including elite athletes, war survivors, CEOs, celebrities, and thousands of everyday people. Mark created the groundbreaking programs Think Slim, Think Calm, Think Sleep, and Think Quit, and the Mind Free app. He's the author of several books, the latest being Mind Free, which is aimed at guiding the reader through mindful self-hypnosis. Mark is an irreverent and fascinating man, and I have been looking forward to chatting to him to understand more about the fascinating topic of self-hypnosis. Mark Stevens, welcome to the show. Great to be here on the uh, One Question podcast, Michelle. Very excited about our chat today. Yeah, it will be fun in our little preamble, um, getting to know you a little bit more, which I can't wait to dive into our topic today. So if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Emotional states. So why is this a topic you're passionate about? Well, the thing is, a lot of the people I work with running retreats and face-to-face hypnotherapy and so on, a lot of people get stuck. They get stuck in one emotional state or another or a few negative emotional states. So maybe they're stuck in sadness. Maybe they're grieving. Maybe they're stuck in procrastination. They don't have any motivation. Maybe they're stuck in anger. Something's happened. Or maybe they've got PTSD, so they're stuck in fear, or they've got a phobia, they're stuck in fear. Maybe something happened in a relationship in the past or in their life, and they're feeling a lot of hurt. And so people get stuck in negative states all the time. And so my job is to help people flip that switch in the mind, flip the switch of the negative state, and switch on the positive state of appreciation, calm, energy, enthusiasm focus, confidence, motivation, forgiveness, compassion. And so that's the way I work is to help people change their state. And when you change your state, see our thoughts, the beliefs, determine a lot of the time how we feel. So if we're saying, I don't have the energy, I'll do it later, it's not as important, then we're putting things off, often putting off our health or our mental and our emotional well-being. But those thoughts generate a feeling, an emotion, an emotional state, and that's either negative or positive. So the negative thoughts generate a negative emotional state, and that becomes a downward spiral of negative thoughts, negative emotions, and and one negative thought 
has an emotion attached to it, and then that has a more negative thoughts, more negative emotions, and then the backpack of life is so overloaded that it's hard to do anything. We can't stick to a diet. I can't get going. It's just I'll start Monday, someday, one day. I'll start next week, next month, next year. It's just too, all too hard at the moment. I've got too much on. People get stuck in a state of overwhelm. So when we can keep returning to that place of calm, when we keep switching on a feeling of compassion or understanding, then we're constantly changing our state because our state then determines how we're going to act, react, respond in everyday life. What we're going to do, our behaviours are determined by our thoughts and our feelings. Amazing. So many questions there, Mark. And to me, it's almost like the modern day, you know, we use the word reframing. And it's something that I kind of use all the time. Like, it's like, yeah, I mean, I have shitty days and, you know, times when I'm not particularly motivated because people are like, you're always happy and you're always so motivated and you get so much done. I'm like, yeah, but I have to work at that. It doesn't always happen naturally, but to your point. And I think I kind of decided, you know, many years ago that I was going to take control of my life and I was the only one that could, you know, really impact my state. But how do you get people to kind of recognize this? Because all those points that you said about being in a negative state and then, you know, moving into these positive states, like there's a massive gap in between, right? So what do you do to help people to transition or to reframe? For sure. Well, a few of the techniques that I like to use are changing a person's belief, helping them to, instead of constantly being stuck in the I can't, I can't, I can't trans, getting to remember there's been plenty of times when they can and they have done things that they thought they couldn't, or you know, it's impossible. What if, what if it was possible? You know, people say, but what if I fail? What if you succeed? What if you keep moving forward? And so part of it, our mind is always drifting into the past or into the future. So we're thinking, and if we're in a negative state, we're thinking of something going wrong. What if this happens? What if that happens? And into the past, we're replaying negative events from the past. But we can also replay positive events from the past and get those good feelings. We can project positive things happening into the future, but we keep returning to now. That's one of the real keys. I mean, mindfulness in the last few years has been you know, the buzzword. Everybody's going, oh, mindfulness, mindfulness. And it really is so beneficial that you can return to being present. Mindfulness for me is another word for Zen. When all the mindfulness books started coming out five or 10 years ago, even though I'd been practicing Zen for over 40 years and mindfulness meditations for decades and, and so on, I started looking at a few people's different techniques. I'm going, it's just Zen. Being present, being Zen, being in the moment, the mind wanders, bring it back to now. The mind wanders, bring it back to now. So that's another technique. We change the beliefs. We get people to keep returning to now. Take anxiety, for example. Anxiety over the last two years has gone off the Richter scale. You, you look at COVID lockdowns. In uh, you know, I had a whole lot of people in a weekend retreat. Now in a makeover five-day program just the last few days, a lot from Victoria, and they were going like, oh, the lockdowns, the anxiety, the stress. I never used to have anxiety. One woman said, I didn't leave my house for a year and a half and I hardly spoke to one. And she said, I've always been anxious and I, I had a bit of PTSD. She said, but when the lockdown started, I couldn't even go to the shops. All this fear just multiplied. So people who didn't have anxiety before now do and people who had a degree of anxiety, it got worse. And people with bad anxiety, it got a whole lot worse. The fear of, what if I die? What if this? So it's the what if and it's the, the feelings we let consume us. So anxiety is a message from your unconscious mind 
to focus on what you do want rather than what you don't want. Because if you're thinking, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this? It's like, don't hit the pothole. Don't hit the pothole. And you're looking at the pothole. Oh, I knew I was going to hit the pothole. It's like someone says, don't look out the back window. You go, whoa, you almost you know, give yourself whip, whiplash looking out the back window. It's like, you know, you can't tell a person what not to do. It's, you know, so, so we guide people. What I do is guide people through the Mind Free book, through our Mind Free app, through our inner makeover weekend and retreats, how to flip that switch in their mind. And it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. And it doesn't mean we won't feel sad in the future. It doesn't mean we might not still procrastinate on certain things. But we now have the tools and resources to keep resetting the mind. So using uh, the anxiety one as an example there, what is one little thing that you would help someone to kind of guide that through? Because, you know, as you said, you've done a lot of meditation from a very young age and obviously you do you know, hypnotherapy and stuff as well, which I want to get into a little bit more. But, yeah, using anxiety as a great example, what could help people to manage that or to, you know, really With anxiety, oftentimes it's the thoughts or we visualise, we imagine something, picture it or think about it happening and maybe someone gets the racing heart, boom, 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 or they get the lump in the throat or they get the heavy feeling in the chest like someone's sitting on or the, oh, in the, the pit of their stomach or maybe it's in the back of their neck or maybe the pressure on their head. So we hold on to that feeling somewhere in our body a lot of the time for most people's anxiety. So what I do is say if it's the racing heart or if it's the pit of the stomach or the solar plexus, as you close your eyes, breathe into that feeling and as you breathe deeply into that feeling, start thinking, shrinking, shrinking, shrinking and imagine the feeling shrinking down, shrinking down, shrinking down as you continue to breathe deeply into that area. So rather than panicking or stressing out about the racing heart, just breathe into it shrinking 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 and then from there once you feel it shrinking down which happens pretty quickly for 90 percent of people with a full-blown anxiety attack once you shrink it down to maybe the size of a golf ball or smaller then like a vacuum you breathe it up into one of your shoulders so you imagine that feeling because where the mind goes the chi the energy flows we can direct the flow of energy in our body so we then vacuum that feeling up into the shoulder breathe it down into our arm into our hand we make a fist around it and then with the next breath you blow it away throw it away and you might need to repeat that two or three times and then breathe in peace breathe out release breathe in peace breathe out release in peace out release and it all just melts away what a great little simple tool. That's fantastic. Yeah, I could see that really working. I've had people in the middle of full-blown PTSD panic attacks, anxiety, full-blown anxiety attacks, people who hadn't left their home for 10 years or a police officer and had a series of traumatic events and doing that exercise in two or three minutes, they're turning around going, unbelievable, I feel okay, I feel calm because what we've done is we've taken their attention, their mind focus from what could go wrong or how they're feeling or, or what's going on to breathing in and out, calm, focusing on shrinking. And then all of a sudden where our tension is going somewhere else, everything starts to change. You start to feel okay. So that, that one of the things that I'm always into is breathing meditations because that's the very first thing I learned 52 years ago was breathing meditation. Yeah, so tell me, how did you get into meditation? What, what brought you into this? As a child with chronic asthma, almost having died a number of times, being rushed to hospital. When I was around eight, 
which is 52 years ago, just turned 60, when I was about eight, doctor at the hospital who was looking after me and said to my mum, we've got a meditation course starting next week. It's once a week for the next eight weeks. I think it would be very good for Mark because a lot of my asthma was triggered off by stress and anxiety, the alcoholic father and, and the mum working three jobs and so on. So through that course, I learned several postures and how to sit and breathe and take deep breaths in and the anxiety would just settle down. So 50 plus years later, I'm still using some of those same techniques, but I'm adding in, breathing in calm, breathing out, relax, breathing in calm, out, relax, in peace, out, release, in, I am, out, strong, or in, I am, out, safe. And it only takes three or four or five breaths. It's one thought, one breath at a time. We can meditate simply and easily. It doesn't have to be 30 minutes or an hour. A lot of people I speak to go, I just can't focus for 30 minutes. I don't have 30 minutes. We've all got one minute. Take one minute out a number of times throughout the day and it keeps countering. See, what happens is from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep and even in our dreams, there's sometimes stressful things happening. There's a traffic jam or you wake up late or somebody rings you and there's a problem or there's more to do at work or there's something financial or a health thing or a neighbour thing or the media or a world event and it, the stress keeps building up, building up and each little thing piles up until towards the end of the day, it's like this pressure cooker lid of life going, but instead of going, I'm going to take a few minutes out to meditate, to do something calming and peaceful for myself. A lot of people, oh, I need some comfort food. I need some chocolate lollies, biscuit, cake, ice cream. Oh, I need a beer or you know, stress. I, I need a cigarette or I, I need to something relaxing. Or I need to you know, go down the social media rabbit hole and just distract myself from the world's problems for the next four hours or, or binge watch TV as my anaesthetic. Whereas the anaesthetic, the natural anaesthetic or the natural karma is the calm place is always within us. It's always there. We just need to return to it. It's like the ocean waves. The Tibetan monks say the wind of thought blows up the ocean and, and creates the big swell and the churned up waves. But anyone knows if there's a wave crashing, if you sink below it, if you sink down under, it's calm and the wave just goes overhead. So we can sink below the frantic energy of the world, people. And each time we do a one-minute meditation or even just one breath, peace, ah, release. That pressure cooker lid of life just keeps bringing the stress levels down. So one minute at a time, we meditate our way into calm, into happiness, into confidence, into energy, whatever it is we want to meditate our way into and we do that with mindful self-hypnosis because the affirmations done that way combine breathing meditation with mindful self-hypnosis, positive suggestions. I can do it. I can do it. And we repeat. It's not just an affirmation. It's so much more because it's combined with the meditation self-hypnosis. So, I mean, that's fabulous. I don't think I've ever been so relaxed in a podcast interview, Mark. You're making me feel very relaxed. I, I've meditated for a very long time, um, but like you say, I have a very busy mind and I really struggled for years to, you know, I'd done yoga 
and probably the first time when I was in my you know early 20s or even earlier but I could never quite meditate my mind would you know be distracted constantly until I had a, a teacher that actually drew on a whiteboard almost like their theory of meditation and how getting rid of the, you know certain elements and that sort of made sense to me and then I could do it from then so I used to meditate after I'd had my cancer kind of journey I meditated every day 20 minutes twice a day you know, and it really worked for me. And then after I'd been doing it for so long, I could get into a meditation like pretty quick and could do a five minute one if I needed to, or a 30 second, you know, getting some dental work done and had to like the drilling. It was just like I was freaking out and it was like having a panic attack and meditating on the dental chair and things like that. But it's an amazing tool that we can use in so many different ways. And to your point about the mindfulness and also things like grounding, you know, when you're feeling like overwhelm, you know, I just touch just below my belly button, just push in there, ground myself. Like if I'm about to do a public speaking or any other elements that kind of draws me down, it's a fabulous little, you know, tiny tool that I use as well. So I'm curious about to have a doctor when you're eight years old suggests for you to do breathing techniques for asthmatic. It was an amazing, like what an incredible thing all those years ago. How did you journey over all the years into um, hypnosis? And uh, I'd love to sort of dig in a little bit more there because it's such a fascinating area and people have, you know, wide opinions about hypnotherapy and stuff as well. So I'd love to sort of dig into that a little bit more with you. Yeah, sure. So as a roundabout at the age of 16, I started doing jujitsu and jujitsu is the art of the Japanese samurai and unarmed combat and we did sword work and everything. But I ended up doing 15 classes a week, which was a lot of jiu-jitsu. I was doing 30 hours plus jiu-jitsu a week. And a big part of that was using visualization techniques. Imagine closing your eyes, imagining yourself doing the perfect throw or the perfect defense, and then practicing it live. And so self-hypnosis, which is really what that was, was a big part of that through my late teens, right through my 20s. And so I also started at the age of 17, started doing Tai Chi and Qigong. And so Qigong is is like the Chinese version of yoga, but with thousands of more exercise and meditations. It's unbelievable how many tens or hundreds of thousands of different exercises there are with Qigong. And so Qi meaning the energy or the breath or the life force and Gong meaning the exercise or the art of. So Qigong translates as the art of the life force. And so through that, I loved it. I found it was just something that I really got into. So for all those years, I was practicing meditation, qigong, tai chi, jujitsu, uh, every course, every class, every book I could get my hands on. And then what happened at the age of 28, I found out I had cancer and a second stage lymphoma. And I thought, well, I really need to do some more work on myself. I was up the meditation, started doing the green juices, the carrot juices and so on, but I thought I need to do more here. So I went and saw a hypnotherapist. And as he took me through that guided imagery, imagining I was walking down some steps, counting me down, I thought, this is just like guided imagery. This is just like visualization. I just thought that to myself. And I got some a couple of his tapes and was using his healing hypnosis sessions and saw him a number of times. And I thought, I want to take up a hypnosis course. Now, this is 1990. So then I went and did a hypnotherapy an introductory three-day weekend, and I'm sitting here going, this is very similar to meditation. They're not the same, but similar, but really close to guided imagery visualization, almost no difference to visualization and guided imagery techniques. So I took to that like a duck to water. And, and even one of the trainers came up and said, oh, so how long have you been doing hypnosis for? 
I said, this is my first class. I've never learned hypnosis before. He said, no, no, you've been doing hypnosis. I said, no, I haven't. I said, I have been doing Qigong, Tai Chi, meditation for 10, 12 years, guided imagery visualization. He said, guided imagery and visualization are one form of hypnosis because you see hypnosis, the earliest records are around 4,000 years ago in the ancient Egyptian sleep temples. People would come in with a problem and the hypnotherapist would look them in the eye. They'd stare in their eyes and say, you are well. You are well, over and over and over again. And then, you know, hypnosis flourished through the, you know, over the centuries, over the millenniums, and it disappeared, and then it would come back, and then it came back in the form of mesmerism. Anton Mesmer, we've all heard of being mesmerized, and he had the royal touch, but he was doing hypnosis. He thought the energy came from him, whereas when it was studied in more detail by the British Medical Association in the 1800s and, and other Doctors, like Scottish doctor, Dr. James Esdale, researched and did more than 3,000 surgeries using hypnosis to get people into a trance-like state before the surgery. And so it's got a long, long history. A lot of people just think, stage show hypnosis, dance like a chicken, sing like Elvis. Oh, when my baby left, sing like Elvis. You know, it's, it's not that. It's not, you're not going to be doing the quack, quack, quacking like a duck, quack, 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 quacking, quacking like a chicken or singing like Elvis. With clinical hypnosis, it's about how do we overcome our challenges? How do we get from A to B and what's stopping us? What are those thoughts? What's our emotional state stopping us? And and what's the baggage we're carrying around? So a lot of the hypnosis helps us fast track releasing that baggage, whereas meditation will calm the mind. And sometimes naturally, some of those things, they just float away. Like you said, the decluttering They'll start to drift away, and as wonderful as meditation is, and I've done already two hours of meditation today, so I'm a fan, obviously, and I've been doing it for 50 years, the hypnosis fast-tracks the result, and that's why I've combined hypnotherapy with meditation to create mindful self-hypnosis so people can get into the relaxed state first with the meditation and then focus on specifically what the problem is to get a result. Amazing. There's so many things that come up for me with that, Mark. And um, I come back to the stage when you talked about the, you know, the stage hypnosis. What is the difference? Because that that is people's perception of hypnosis and it's a bit wacky and, you know, people are crazy and there's no way in hell they could be doing that. You know, it must be all set up and stuff. So what's the difference or what happens through that stage versus like the type of work you do, for example? Exactly. Hopefully I've been changing that perception and some of the TV appearances and you know, all the different stories and the chats like this and the radio interviews help change that perception because people do straight away think of the quacking duck, the singing like Elvis, and your shoe phone is ringing and someone picks up their phone and goes, hello, chief. Yes, this is Max. I'm surrounded by 100 deadly chaos agents. Would you believe I'm surrounded by four angry girl guides? Stage hypnosis is a fun night out at a club or on a cruise or wherever they're doing it, and people don't have to be drunk. But what happens is the stage hypnotist will invite, you know, when you hear the music and you feel the urge to come up on the stage, you'll be the stars of the show here tonight. So if you want to do that, come up on stage and the music starts and people go, I want to get hypnotized. This is a whole lot of crazy fun. And so they'll all come up on stage. But what the the stage hypnotist does, he will use a series of what we call hypnotic convincers or tests to see who can go into a trance the quickest, who will follow the positive suggestions and and their imagination 
works more rapidly because it would make a pretty crappy show if someone's going, no, I'm not hypnotised yet, I'm not hypnotised yet, no, I'm a bit relaxed but I'm not hypnotised. How does that happen though? What's the difference? So you and I are standing there, like what, what is the difference between someone? Everybody's yeah. different in the, the speed at which they go into trance. So the stage hypnotist is looking yeah. for those people who go into a trance the quickest. And so they do these different tests, like the finger vice, clasping your fingers together. You hold your fingers out and you imagine you can try this now if you want to. So hold your fingers apart. You want to do that? Clasp your fingers together. So lock them tight together. Then put your two fingers out. Stare at the space in the middle of your fingers and imagine a magnet, a magnet. Think magnet, a powerful magnet pulling those fingers together. There's a magnet there. Stare at the space in the middle as you're thinking magnet, <laughs> magnet, magnet, and your fingers go together. But if someone's going, those fingers aren't going together, I'm not going to be told what to do. No one's controlling my mind. The people that respond the quickest, they'll say, you, 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 stay. Everybody else off stage. Then they'll use mainly visualization, imagination. You imagine that foot, there's super glue. Your foot is stuck to the ground. It's stuck to the ground. It's super glue. It's super glue. It's stuck to the ground. And then the person will be going, I can't move my foot. Their body has been taken on board the suggestion their foot is stuck, their foot is stuck. Whereas with clinical hypnosis, we're saying, what's your biggest challenge? How can we change that thinking? How can we have you visualizing yourself like a mental rehearsal, doing some, something positive, going for that walk, doing the meditation, making healthy choices, or you visualize yourself throwing out all the rubbish, or you visualize yourself at the end of having decluttered your whole home or whatever, however we're using it, you're visualizing yourself if it's tennis, doing a better serve, if it's golf, hitting a ball more perfectly, if whatever sports, music, all areas of life, having a happier relationship, letting go of the what's in the backpack of life. So through different types of hypnotic techniques, we can help people unload the backpack of life more rapidly than what we would with meditation. But when we combine meditation and hypnosis, and all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. So when you're learning hypnosis, it's a do-with process with the hypnotherapist so you can learn those techniques so that you can then practice that and you wake up out of the trance you're in. Because so many people are stuck in the sadness trance or they're stuck in the emotional pain trance or they're stuck in the, the I'll do it later trance or I'll do it next week, next month, next year. I'll start Monday, one day, someday. I'll just do it later. I don't have time now. People get stuck in the I don't have time trance or the it's too hard trance or the, the big one, the I'm not good enough trance. That's the one I see people stuck with more than anything. No matter what their other challenges are, they're often just saying, but I don't deserve it or I don't deserve to be happy or I'm not good enough. And so when we keep saying that over and over, it radiates an energy, it creates an emotion, an emotional state within us of less than, low self-worth, lack of confidence, not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. So through the hypnosis and through different techniques, we get the person to float back and completely release all the negative thoughts, pictures and feelings related to the I'm not good enough as they get positive lessons or or a thought they can take into the future or a piece of wisdom or advice, which might be, I am good enough. I'm more than good enough. I do deserve it. I am worthy. I make time for me. I appreciate my life. My health is my wealth. I am a mover. I take action. I, I do it now, do it now, do it now. And instead of, what if I fail? What if you succeed? What if it hurts? What if you break through that barrier? What if I can't do it? What if you can do it? So we're constantly 
flipping those switches in the mind that keep us stuck in the old negative thought and the thought is what generates the states, the emotional states, and then the thoughts and the states together determine how we react, how we act, how we respond in the world. So as we change our thoughts and our emotional state, all of a sudden we are more motivated, we get more done, we feel better about ourselves, we, we laugh a little bit more and, and, and a little bit at a time, baby steps, we make all those changes. You obviously believe that the mind is incredibly powerful. Well, that's my interpretation of everything you're talking about is how powerful our mind is to override our body. And even in those physicality, kind of those examples about, you know, your foot being stuck on the floor, like your, that's your mind literally overriding the ability because you can lift your foot off, but you, your mind's just kind of, you know, triggered that. Through my kind of cancer journey, I'd done a lot of reading and my mum had passed away from cancer and both my grandparents as well. And so it was quite rife in our family. And I was a big believer in everything that I read that you have an ability to, you know, not necessarily change what's happened to you in life, but you can be a person that, oh, poor me, I've got cancer, I'm going to die. Like, you know, this is what's going to happen and I'm just going to seal my fate and, you know, be a miserable, you know, person. Or you can be positive about it and go, okay, this is pretty shit. (laughs) It's not what I wanted. I didn't anticipate this happening. But what can I do to be better? Like, as you said, the, the journey that you went on, you know, my food was a big thing to look at everything I was putting into my body, the fuel I was, you know, providing to ensure that the baseline of my physicality, you know, the physical body, you know, had its best chance to fight all these kind of, you know, gremlins that were growing inside me. But the mind was such a powerful part of that. And, you know, I'm interested to sort of hear a little bit about your view of that, of how, you know, how much our mind is, people just don't, they underestimate the power that we have within us to yeah, change absolutely. things in our lives. The body has a blueprint for perfect health and healing and our thoughts are energy. So people can make themselves sick with worry. Stress can cause a heart attack or a stroke, high blood pressure generated by negative thoughts and and getting stuck in a negative emotional state. And that's why, as we said at the start, emotional states are so important because our thoughts are generating those states. So as we constantly work on reassessing, evaluating our thinking patterns and changing those to be more nourishing, more uplifting, and of course, the building blocks, if you've got a health condition, the the building blocks of good nutrition make a huge difference. The building blocks of positive thoughts, uplifting thoughts, and how to keep getting into an emotional state where we're uplifted, where we're inspired, where we're motivated, and because thoughts are powerful medicine. And so our body is reacting. Every thought, chemical changes are taking place in our body. And if those If our thoughts are negative constantly, that's suppressing our immune system. That's weakening the body overall. That's impacting our organs, our organ health and so on. So when our thoughts are more inspired, uplifting, nurturing, then we start to feel better. And we we combine that with good nutrition and maintaining a positive state, emotional state, as much as possible. Then as we slip into a negative state or we have some negative thoughts, we can pick ourselves up out of that much quicker. And I've seen cases of a woman, Leone, 59 years, Chiari malformation, a headache that she was born with. That's a 9 or 10 out of 10 headache on a good day, 15 out of 10 on a bad day, so much so that she tried to kill herself five times. 
that headache's now gone. It's been 12 months. It took two hours and 15 minutes, 12 different meditation hypnosis sessions, one after the other, and by the end of it, her pain was at a half out of 10. She'd had surgery cutting her head from the crown to the base of the skull to scrape away the bone on the inside to give the cerebellum more room. It had led to more than uh, two dozen different conditions from agoraphobia, depression, insomnia, loss of balance, and so on. And most of that's gone now. She's coming off the medications, a lot of positive changes, but on a bad day, her headache now gets up to a three or four, but she listens to two or three of our mind-free hypnosis sessions or meditation sessions every day. And she said, she's sure, positive, that that's what keeps the pain away. So that's overridden, as you said, with the foot to the ground, but in a, a clinical medical case, Hypnosis works unbelievably well with chronic pain. I've seen it work you know, literally thousands of times and, and even now after all these decades. But some of the techniques I learned from a Tibetan monk who was a German psychologist who went to Tibet for three months and stayed on the mountain in the monastery for 10 years. Then when she was in Australia, I studied under and did a number of courses. And that was like 40 plus years ago. Yeah, 40 years ago. I was 18, 19. That's like 43 years ago. And that combined with all the Chinese meditations, the traveling to Japan, the Zen meditations, the, the different yoga traditions, all combined with the clinical hypnotherapy, that's you know where I'm able to get those amazing results. And, and my number one value is results and, and seeing people make positive changes. So it's it's always rewarding. It's incredible work. And I think for anyone, you know, that like the naysayers, I guess, the other side to that is things like in the medical arena where they use placebo and they can't explain like you know why people are healing and you know when they've got the you know the medication or the scenario that it is nothing a person's belief if they take that placebo and they're going wow this is going to work i'm going to get better already there's positive energy being generated my professor oncologist 30 years ago he said mark your belief that you'll get better means you're halfway there it makes a huge difference your belief and so for a professor of oncology, a scientific man to say that, the minute our last retreat, uh, we had a doctor. The weekend before, uh, we had another doctor and we had a, a medical centre clinic manager saying, we all need this. We all need these mindful self-hypnosis techniques, the way you've developed them, or, or more meditation or more self-hypnosis, finding the right thing. But I mean, I've spent 50 years putting it all together and 23 years writing this book so it makes it easy for people to go through those big main challenges like stress, anxiety, insomnia, chronic pain, weight issues, phobias. Actually, one perfect example. We had a fellow at a retreat, 80 years old, his whole adult life, since he left school, he was night shift. And he said, my whole night, I would get home at six, often I would stay up till eight or nine am. Then I'd go to sleep and wake up at three or four and then go again. He said, when I retired, I was in the hope that I could sleep at night. He said, I've tried, I've tried music, I've tried meditations, nothing. He said, it's just like I'm wired the very first night of the treat when we did a technique called the sleep train, where you switch off all blue lights for an hour or two before, switch off all media, and you take time out to prepare. Then knowing that you start to get a bit tired at 9.30 or 10.30, you get ready before the sleep train pulls in to get on the sleep train by lying down ready and you're on the platform waiting for that sleep train to pull in by doing an appreciation meditation, a very present body and mind together as one, legs in legs, arms in arms, body and mind together as one, 
followed by a blackboard countdown, drawing each number, imagining and then rubbing it out, writing the word sleep and rubbing that out and going all the way down. He got up the next morning and he said, unbelievable. He said, 9.30, I got on the sleep train. He said, I woke up four hours later and I didn't get off the platform, off the train onto the platform. I jumped because I tell, don't get off the train. You know, don't go and have something to eat or you'll be, the train will go without you. You've got to get straight back on that train. And so, and we have a bit of fun with it. And he said, I got, I got straight back on the train and I slept for another four hours. He said, I've just slept for eight hours through the night. And he said, I feel brand new. I feel like a million dollars. The second night, he said it took a little bit longer and he had nine hours sleep, but it took a bit longer. He said, I feel brand new. I heard back from two weeks later, he said, every night I'm on the 9.30 sleep train. Wow. And, you know, we all know how important sleep is for everyone. It just makes such a difference in your life. Mark, I could let you talk for hours, but uh, I'm conscious we are um, well over time already. But it's been fascinating, really interesting to chat to you. Fantastic. Great being with you, Michelle. I'll look forward to another chat down the track. Thanks, Mark. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favour? please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com.